Hi, and welcome to today's episode of Speak Crazy at Max Street Kitchen, where we talk to chefs who've delighted us with their food right here in this beautiful kitchen. And my guest today is someone that I'm thrilled to be talking. I've been talking to him uh, just before the show, and I can't wait to share his story with all of you. He is Chef Brihadesh, who is known um, for his Japanese restaurant, Ginko, in Pune. And uh, I was like, Chef, what's your last name? And he said, it's Bredish, like Shri Devi. Uh, welcome to the show, Chef. It's so great to have you here. It's a pleasure. And it's really nice meeting you for the first time. Although you've spoken for so many times. I know, so I'm really times. sad that I wasn't here when you did your meal. But I heard only amazing things, which made me more jealous. But um, we'll just have to get you back <laughs> into the kitchen uh, to cook again. But uh, Chef, you have an incredible story. Um, let's start right at the beginning. Um, you know, you ended up in, in Pune at some point and you also then eventually ended up in Japan. Um, but that stemmed from this, um, I think it's fair to say, childhood childhood obsession with Japan. Um, how did that happen? Uh, pretty much early on, probably when I was in my second or third grade, is when I found this small piggy bank in my mom's uh, wardrobe. I was very intrigued when I looked at the 10 yen coin. It's it's called a Ju and Dama in Japanese. And the back side of it, the effigy is uh, Byodoin, which is a Japanese temple in Kyoto. I was very um, amazed at the fact that it was carved very uh, very deep in a very detailed manner. Each each tile on the roof was carved on it. So when you look at other coins, they're usually a little blurred, they're a little bumpy. You might have a few faults here and there, but this coin was perfect. And that's that's kind of where it started. And uh, I also created a very funny uh, signature for myself, which was kind of in Japanese, <laughs> which is still stuck to stuck with me till date. So I still have that signature, which is apparently Japanese, but not anymore. Uh, and that's where it went on and on. And probably in 11th and 12th, uh, I had this option to study Japanese as a second language. So I... Wow, you've been to, you've had a very progressive education, I have to say, because no school in Bombay, I think. That is uh, SIS. Okay. It's in science, South Indian Education Society. Okay, that's, not, that's even crazier <laughs> that a South Indian Education Society in has a Japanese option. Yes, nice. 11th to 12th. That is amazing. So that was your first kind of um, formal sort of formal training in the language. introduction to the language, yes. yeah. Which is where I started getting very interested in the language because of the script called Kanji. It's the Chinese script, which is uh, kind of an ideograph where you do not have an alphabet, which is phonetic. You have an alphabet that has a picture. So each picture means something. There's an alphabet for water. There's an alphabet for, say, hot. There's an alphabet for women. There's an alphabet for scissors. So you have like thousands and thousands of them. So for me, this was very my kind of a thing because I like drawing, I like artistic things, um, I like creative stuff. So this was very nice for me. I started getting more and more into it. And uh, yeah, that's that's where it deepened a lot more. There was a small scholarship that you could apply for uh, in, in 11th and 12th after studying Japanese for school students. Okay. It was a small two-week exchange right. for high school students where different uh, nationalities would just come together, 10, 12 of them study Japanese as a language, have a little fun here and there, and then go back to their home countries. So after this, I was, I was again like 18 years old, 
I was very excited. I, I had been to a new country for the first time. Uh, I had met new a new race of people. I had seen their politeness. I had seen the way they work. I was very excited to be honest. And then when I came back, I thought I want to study this more. I want to get deeper into this. So after this, I actually wanted to be a chef. So I joined IHM. But where did that kind of um, that come into your sort of you know moving into culinary? Uh, again, like since I was a kid, I was always into making anything from scratch. One of those things was cooking. Food coming out of nowhere was very exciting. And again, it's artwork, but it's also edible. So for me, it was like very exciting. I thought I thought of different professions. I thought probably I could be a scientist. I'm very interested in science as well. So either I wanted to be a scientist, a biotechnologist, or a fashion designer, or an architect, or a chef. <laughs> so these are my five options. And what did your parents have to think about this? So my mom they... wanted me to be a doctor or a dentist. She's also a doctor. <laughs> and I, I was, uh, to be honest, I was not very against it because, again, I was some part of being a doctor is also science, is also making things from scratch. So she would be like, why don't you be an orthodontist or someone who makes like, uh, sure. Yeah, yeah, or something like that. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> like, like, you actually said that. So I was like, yeah, I mean, that's oh, nice, not bad, but I don't think I want to do it every day. It's not so creative. So uh, that's kind of where it all began. And then I thought, okay, probably I just want to be a chef because I went to this. Um, have you heard of Mood Indigo? The um, festival. IIT Bombay Festival. Yeah. So there was a small thing there called Chef's Corner. And back then, the judge for that was uh, Chef Coelho from IHM. Right. So he, I met him there and uh, there was this round where he had to make pasta from scratch. You had to make the red sauce. You had to make, uh, you had to blanch a tomato with that X, uh, the cross mark, removing the eyes and all that. And I did it uh, the way it was instructed on a paper. And he was quite impressed. He said, oh, what do you do? And uh, you should come to IHM, visit the place once. So I just went on one random day and I saw the whole place. I really got into it. I thought probably I want to be a chef and then also be a food technologist. So I could kind of combine science and food. But uh, yeah, this, this is how the idea of becoming a chef slowly came into the picture. And you also went, so um, you also went, you did your BA in um, Japanese. So this is again a very crazy story. Right in the middle when I was in IHM. Wouldn't expect anything less from you. <laughs> in my second year, I uh, I looked up Japanese uh, language institutes, came up, TMB came up. And I was like, this is the place I need to be because this has... What is TMB again? TMB is uh, Tilak Maharashtra Vidyapit. It's one of the few universities in India which have a BA in MA in Japanese language and literature. So I skipped year one by doing a one month uh, course, crash course. I directly went to the second year. Second year, they had an option of doing a correspondence course. So so you were doing two, two things at the same time. Okay. I was doing IHM from Monday to Friday. I was doing Japanese Saturdays and Sundays. I'd go to Pune. I would pester my teacher to come on that day. And was this teacher Japanese or? She was, she's Indian. She's a Marathi teacher. And uh, she was she was she was really kind enough to uh, sit sit for another one hour after her work timings just to like you know teach me what I wanted to know. And third year I moved to Pune after I finished my third year in IHL. Uh, I moved to Pune because this was the third and most crucial year in Japanese where 
a lot of things were more about literature more about small nuances in japanese language which i could not just go on a weekend and learn so which is when i decided to move and stay there go as a regular student for a year and uh, i was aiming for the mex scholarship this was my next biggest dream uh, this is a one year scholarship that the japanese government gives students uh, around 3 to 4 indian students every year they get a chance to go to japan study at any university of their choice and uh, do some research in japanese language on any topic so i was really aiming for this i worked really hard for this and uh, yeah gave us you exams interviews made it to japan stayed there for a year a little over a year because it covid sound a lot easier than i think it probably was but that is amazing and how many students apply for this and end up around 3 to 600 anywhere oh between them wow and from all around the world there are around 12 students who uh end up going to each university and this was where in tokyo or was this was a university called chiba university right next to tokyo yeah this is where i learned and studied japanese as a research scholar for a year and obviously they give you a stipend every month which you can use on anything that you want so i used a lot of it on traveling uh, tried traveling all different prefectures of japan i managed to do 30 covid happened when i was in japan so i had to stop this traveling spree the worst places to be stuck it was it was a really good place to be stuck because uh, the government back then did not have a law that could enforce people staying home so the government could only say please stay at home it's advisable but you could go you out. could go out and no but one would say anything was anything open everything was open wow they also had this thing called go to campaign where the government was promoting traveling to remote areas of japan and bringing down the price of flight tickets and hotel stays So a lot of people were actually so traveling. Basically, had a bubble happening. And yeah, and people were traveling. Yes, <laughs> on <laughs> I was also traveling, and then February and March, uh, all Japanese universities and schools have something called a Haruyasumi, which is a spring break. It's a big, it's a big holiday when you can you can do anything that you want. And I thought, why not apply to a Japanese confectionery store to learn Japanese sweets called wagashi. but unfortunately because no wagashi shop wanted a foreigner working in their shop i couldn't find any but i found a japanese food academy in nipponyori academy and they recommended me to kuroi which is a more than 180 year old three michelin star kaiseki ryote in kyoto so i was I did not have a lot of idea about such things back then, but I just said, "Okay, why not?" You just you just like skipped everything and just went right yeah. for like. <laughs> let me just go right to the top. So I was like, "This just this just sounds normal." Okay, fine. What is a Michelin star anyway? I don't know. What's the big? Yeah, I was like, "Okay, fine. I'll just go and see." And then when I reached there on February, I think the first week, I was like, "Wait, this place looks very like there's there's this aura around it which is not very normal uh, for a restaurant." So I was I was very surprised and I was like okay fine I I'll work here I'll see what I can learn uh and that's where I actually got into kaiseki cuisine I started knowing what Japanese food actually stands for what is the cooking philosophy how Japanese food has evolved over the past 300 years and a very good comparison I like to give people when I speak about kaiseki cuisine or Japanese cuisine is uh it's for Japanese people what Hindustani and Carnatic music is for Indians It's some. It's not something that you just learn for a year and then master it. It's something that you learn for fifteen years, sixteen years. But isn't it true for like all Japanese food? It's very true. It's very true, and that that's what I mean. Like for Japanese people, food is not very casual. It's 
it's much more of an art form it's it's very well developed over the past 300 years they've developed stories ways of doing certain things how we in hindustani music have certain rules you can't just sing anything that you want you have certain rag you have certain uh gat ya taal and you have to f- follow that framework to be able to be recognized so even kaiseki cuisine is such a lot of rules a lot of season related uh uh details that you need to really follow to the to the t to be able to call yourself a kaiseki master or a chef and how long does it take before you can call yourself a kaiseki master i think it takes more than 15 20 years at least but even the small bit that i absorbed from being there for two or three months i think i absorbed the essence that the food stands for and i think uh it's a good start for me to show this to indian people to people who have not even heard about it a lot of japanese food is all about say ramen karage izakaya food yakitori but i think this this section of japanese food is much more strong to japanese roots than the izakaya food because izakaya food is something that's traveled so just for the interest of everyone as ignorant as me can you um explain these terms so uh if to put japanese food into two general categories i would say there's kaiseki and there's izakaya ryori and in between you have a few other things like kappo you have something like much fucharyori you have something called shojin ryori but in general they both somewhere or the other fall into either izakaya kind of food which is fast food and something that falls more into the kaiseki style of food so which is which is what japanese people would refer to as nihon ryori which literally translates to Japanese khana so Japanese khana or nihon ryori or kaiseki cuisine is the original japanese food it does not have its roots back in any other country as such uh it's more about seafood it's more about uh, umi no sachi yama no sachi which means the blessings of the mountain and the blessings of the sea japan is blessed with these two things very abundantly and they really respect the sea and the mountain ingredients and using all of this the cuisine that developed over the centuries uh with a lot of fermentation as well is what kaiseki is all about it started from tea ceremonies uh called cha kaiseki where the tea ceremony master said let's have some food with the tea ceremony which extends for 2 to 3 hours so they started with a little rice soup and pickle this over time became let's add something else let's add something else and it became something called a honzen ryori which is a banquet meal for the royals for the aristocrats and after this they started having alcohol with it and it became a more and more extravagant affair with a lot more alcohol some remnants of tea and today it's called kaiseki ryori right and the tea is kind of like yeah it's gone it's gone to the air so usually when you have kaiseki today in happen throughout you usually have it throughout but tea usually appears then yeah. you get a small whipping of matcha then and you get sake throughout So again kaiseki has become a branch of two things called either cha kaiseki and kaiseki. Uh and coming to the next part of Japanese food the izakaya style of food it's more of the fast food. Uh how if I had to put this in Indian context I would say an onam sadhya as compared to a naan and butter chicken. Something that you would usually have at a restaurant very easy. Yeah, samosa, pav bhaji versus a onam sadhya where you have a lot of rules. the number of items the way you place the leaf the way you wash the leaf you have a lot of these religious ritual ritualistic aspects to it so i think that's that's a very similar comparison between kaiseki 
and is a kind of food. So we'll talk a little bit more about your food. You came, um, so so you uh, at some point, I guess, got back before lockdown or we during the lockdown, I had come back on the Vande Bharat mission. Oh, you were one of those. <laughs> <laughs> so you came back, and um, how long before you opened uh, Ginko? When I came back, I was now wondering what should I do next. Now I know Japanese. Now I have worked in a little small restaurant, not a small restaurant. Sorry. I worked in a restaurant for a small uh, duration yeah. and uh, I know a little about Wagashi also. So what can I do next? So I just sit at home in the lockdown, which I'm not used to at all. I was used to traveling in the lockdown. I was thinking, what? This is when Siddhi, one of my classmates uh, from IHM, she calls me and she's like, what are you doing? And what's going on in life? She says, well, I'm, I was thinking of opening a restaurant. What do you think about doing it? I was like, yes, sounds good. And then she's like, no, what, what do you like? How about doing it together? So, like, <laughs> <laughs> okay, sounds good. I was very excited. I'm usually, whenever I'm excited, sad, or very angry, I don't. It does not appear in my face very prominently or in my voice. So she was like, "Why not excited? You don't, you don't sound very happy about it." You were like, "This is me excited." I was like, "No, no, listen, I'm excited. <laughs> it just doesn't sound like I'm excited." And yeah, we started speaking. There was a conversation. We got it rolling. Uh, I went to Pune. I stayed at a house for a while. Uh, we did small trials at a house. Uh, we got a few friends to come over and taste and give their uh, opinions about how they like the food. We uh, searched for a few places that could be a potential restaurant. We were either thinking of opening a delivery kitchen or a restaurant and a delivery kitchen because this was right amidst the lockdown. So, uh, yeah, we just found a random place and we are like, oh, this looks nice. We can also have a restaurant. I we can also do a... you there because... Kids sound very easy to open a restaurant, and uh, I, I, you know, I know if I had Jay sitting here, my husband um, and business partner, and he would have a completely different version of how he went about opening a restaurant. Um, so it's, uh, you know, I think I think you have to take everything ready saying with a with a pinch of salt because um, it 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 sounds a lot easier than I think it is. But interestingly, during COVID. Uh, or at least like the first sort of, you know, um, leg of it. No one was thinking about opening restaurants, right? Everyone was just like either shutting them or like just trying to survive. And here you were like, I'm going to open a restaurant. So um, clearly not doing anything on uh, the conventional route. So how long did it take you from the time when you were like, okay, let's, let's, do this. You'll call me crazy again. Yeah, probably. <laughs> but, like, but five times in the next. <laughs> we, we, start, we started looking, we started doing these trials and moved to her place just to stay for a week in December. This is December 2020. 2020, yes. We started. Just when things have opened up in this country. <laughs> and we started the restaurant on 20th January. I'm having like, I'm having like palpitations listening to this, even though it's all panned out really well, but yeah, it was it was really fast, and we also did not involve any architect or any interior designer. We did the walls ourselves. So, like I said, making things from scratch. I like I like designing the kitchen myself. I was like, okay, let me separate the cold kitchen from the hot kitchen this way. Let do tables in such such a way that I can stack them at night. I can probably pull out the countertop to wipe it. All the Japanese ways of design where you do not design something for the aesthetic of it but designed for the functionality of it and for the ease of storing, for the ease of cleaning. Can you can you clean each and every corner if you dismantle it? 
So this is what this was a very interesting process for both of us. We did all of this on our own. Uh, the restaurant opened on twentieth, twenty first of Jan. Called a few friends and family for the opening. Uh, went well. Initially, we were a little skeptical of doing just Japanese food in Kothrud, which is a very very uh, local area in Pune, which which is not very uh, developed in terms of restaurants. So we had a menu which was a little Thai, a little Vietnamese, a little Korean, just so the for the familiarity of uh, Indian palate, where you have some chili, where you have some garlic. Uh, but yeah, over time, we just realized that more than inventory you have, you have a lot of stuff lying in the right. fridge, you have less stuff that's going out, rolling out in time. So just, and I thought I should do something that I'm better at. Initially, the food was really, I had to be honest, not very nice, not very refined, not very um, up to the mark. And I think over a period of six to seven months, it all fell into place. From what you're saying, your main experience with cooking was when you did the um, the stage with uh, the three star restaurant, and you went straight into opening a restaurant after that. Did you ever kind of feel apprehensive about that, like going straight into opening a restaurant without having maybe worked in restaurants before? So we were actually very lucky in in terms of everything being a good uh, combination for us because. Uh, I had the I had at least some experience with Japanese food. I had I had studied the language by now. I had uh, kind of grasped what Japanese food actually stands for. What should be kind of the flavors. What should be the ways of making it. My partner Siddhi, she had done her HDP at Taj Mahal Palace. So she had the work experience. So I mean that's a really an important thing that you bring up because I think it does require the right combination of people because it it takes. It more than just a chef or just a business owner to um, run a restaurant. So I think that's probably something that's really worked. In and then we had support from our families. We had financial backing from our parents. So it was it was a right fit. She was really good at things that I am really bad at. We did not have a lot of overlapping skills where we would kind of you know have a tiff around and be like, oh no, I want to do it this way. Oh no, I want to do it that way. We left each other to do- yeah to do what we are good at and let it just happened to be a good fit. And so then, you know, you open the restaurant, you, um, and then obviously the second lockdown would have happened. How did that play out for you? I, I think it was a big blessing for us in that, in that sense, because uh, like I said, when we started, everything was kind of in a mess. Did you have some breathing space to kind of catch up. So I, I couldn't like produce or uh, produce the same kind of food that I could make at home. In a larger scale, on a larger scale, I could not make 20 bowls of ramen which tasted really nice. Uh, even though I could one or two. Or probably say I could not uh, manage the inventory the right way. I could not uh, get all my staff to work the same way I would want to want them to work. Yeah, I wouldn't be able to train them the right way. So I think this uh, lockdown gave us a good breather where people wouldn't come into the restaurant have this bad food and then have a bad experience and then us knowing not knowing how to handle this situation. You used the COVID, um, the lockdown to your advantage in a way to, you know, have that that uh, breathing room. But often, you know, restaurants don't have that because you do need to, like you said, stop and fix and then, you know, resume. But most times when you open a restaurant, either you, you can't even afford to you know, keep it closed, right? Because it's, um, you're paying rents, etc., salaries. And uh, that's that's one of my biggest learnings from, you know, having 
uh, been in this business, it is important actually to get your product right before you open uh, as much as you can do, you know, in the sense that you should feel confident for yourself, you know, and then of course it can improve with feedback and things. But you mentioned about the team, right? Like, I mean, Japanese cuisine is one of the most technically complicated and this I know even without being a chef, you know, and that's one of the reasons it's also expensive. It, you know, it takes years of training, like we said, uh, before you can call yourself a master. Um, on the other hand, you know, you've got a team that's probably never been to Japan, um, may, may not have like even had the food before. How did that um, play out for you as, you know, someone who was trying something? Uh, more than the guest, uh, I, I like to teach people about what I know. So if I know something about Japanese food, I like I like to really convey it the same way I have learned it to all of them. So whoever joins us, I, by the way, all of the people who work at Ginkgo are all under 25. Wow. And most of them fresh out of college. Um, but one thing that uh, that I constantly try to tell them or tell anyone who's trying to learn Japanese food is that you need to look at Japanese food as a very different cuisine. Or say, for example, Indian food, we have tons and tons of spices. We have so many ingredients to work with. It's always about what addition, what combination is going to make it tastier. Japanese food is always about what can I subtract from the ingredient that I have already to make it more perfect. It's already perfect in the form that God has given to given it to us. That's what they believe. Because say for, for example a fish, I do not want to spoil this beauty. But what I want to do is I want to remove these small things that probably don't make it as enjoyable. So for example, the scales. So what can I remove from it and how can I remove that without disturbing the original flavors, the original texture is what Japanese food is all about. Uh, this is something I always try to convey to people who are newly introduced to Japanese food because for us, uh, understanding that side of the world is very difficult. It's like, why does, not, why does it not have so much flavor? Why does it not have this fireworks going on in my mouth? But once you start noticing such things, the way they have consciously created this cuisine over 400, 500 years. The restaurants in Kyoto, which are more than 400 years, still operating. I'm sure you have so much culture, so much stories passed down, so much tradition. And to convey this is, I think, one of the most important things for me. But you know, you touched on something that's obviously fundamental to this cuisine, which is ingredients. When it comes to a, a sort of cuisine like Japanese, the ingredients even more uh, precious because Often it's eaten in its raw form. It, um, have you sort of ever had a challenge with that um, as far as, uh, you know, access to ingredients or finding the best for what you want? Uh, initially, it was a big challenge. Even now, I would not say it's not a challenge. But uh, I think I've found a good sweet spot where I know which ingredients are really good in India. Some of them are really good in India as compared to as they are in Japan. For example, chicken. Uh, chicken, a lot of Japanese people find Indian chicken much more flavorful than Japanese chicken. Said no one ever. <laughs> yeah. And but but then of course like things like wagyu, beef, pork, they just have researched so much. They have so much science to produce that in a certain way that we still haven't. There's a lot of technique. For example, ikejime for the fish. So a little a little context to this is that Japanese cuisine likes uh, five methods of cooking to be incorporated in the menu. These are called goho, 
uh, there's uh, raw, there's uh, stewed, it's called niru, there's grilled, there's steam, and then there is uh, cutting. These are five techniques that you use in Japanese food. There's also frying, sorry. So, I think they consider keeping the food raw the best form of cooking. For this to, to work out, you have to have the effort, the joint effort of not only the chef, but also the person who grows that. Okay, uh, yeah. The person who catches the fish, the person who feeds the fish, the kind of water the fish lives in, plus the person who transports it to you, you and the person who eats it as well. So there's a method called Ikejime where you kill a fish a certain way without it knowing that it's going to be killed. You put a wet towel around its face, keep it in, a, in oxygenated water till till comes to your restaurant, cover its eyes, then quickly pierce its brain. Then stop its central nervous system activity using a stick so that there's no more uh, flight or fright or adrenaline rush that kind of, you know, uh, clenches of the muscles. And the muscles just remain the same way. They're not tense. And then there's no ATP uh, formation which kind of deteriorates a muscle or putrefaction does not happen very fast. And then what they do is they remove all the blood because blood carries bacteria. And then they remove all the organs because all parasites live in organs which move to muscles after a while. After the fish is dead. To an, to an extent, I have uh, probably managed to use fish that's probably done Ikejime in Japan and then get it to India under a frozen condition and then use it. And things that you do not need this kind of treatment where you do not eat it raw, I try to use local produce. I try to use vegetables that are locally grown that you find very easily in winters, very easily in summers, which are very similar to Japanese vegetables. Arbi is one of them which I use very often in my kaiseki menus. It's something that they use a lot. They use a lot of arbi. They call it satoimo and they do a lot of different things with it. Um, they also use kolokesha. Mackerel is very common in Japan. It's called saba. And in India, it's called bangra. Wow. Wow. That is... I mean, you had me like gripped over there. It sounds beautiful. You know, it's something that I, I think when you understand the... It's not the science, but the attention given to the ingredient and you know that thought process it really I think as a someone who doesn't cook but who loves food I think it just changes your whole um, you know experience of it not just being that that finishing line where you're just eating you know but really knowing um, how it got there is uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's very moving I, I don't know any other sort of Indian who has done the extent of you know um learning that you have about the language, the culture, the cuisine. So that's really incredible. I mean, like, kudos to you. I can't wait to come to your restaurant now and try your food. I mean, of course, we'll uh, have to get you back in Mag Street Kitchen. Um, how's the restaurant going now? It's really good. It's busy. Now, from from a from a team of three, we are a team of uh, eight, nine people. We have, we have interns coming and going. I really like the change where new people come in and I get to teach. I've never been to Japan. It's a big dream of mine and it's uh, very, very high, if not the highest on my bucket list. Um, how, what would you, how would you tell me to experience it as a first-time traveler? Uh, Japan, like I said, is a very different country. People there have a very different way of thinking. Uh, we cannot, we cannot uh, put them in the same box as other humans, I, I personally believe. They're really different. They want everything on time. They want everything a certain way. It cannot be 1.5 millimeters. It has to be 1 millimeter. 
it has to be 12:59 pm if you're meeting a friend even if it's a closest friend they'll not t- tolerate you reaching at 1 pm so it's it's a very different culture and i think we should when we're going there we should do a small background study of sorts where we just kind of figure out what kind of people they are what kind of a society it is for for it to make uh for it to be a better experience for us because imagine going there and looking like this foreigner who does not know anything and is very rude people are not going to treat you the same way they would have if you gave respect yes so if you make that small effort to be the way they uh, are i think you would you would get a much 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 better experience in japan um and in general japan is a very very beautiful country another one thing that i would like to say when you are visiting japan is do not expect them to be very outgoing they're not very outspoken people they're not very friendly in terms of how indians are i can just randomly sit next to you on a train and start speaking to you about your husband your children where they go to school but in japan that's frowned upon a little because they respect a lot of private space they were reserved in terms of uh, personal life i think you're more japanese than indian if i may say so i'm equally both i have a bitter sweet relationship with both i miss india when i'm in japan i miss japan when i'm in india there are really good things about india which i love which japan does not have and there are really good things about japan which india doesn't have and i think if both could like you know merge you don't be the best amazing listen it's it's so fantastic listening to your story and um we're going to sort of pivot a little bit into a, a fun uh must be session which is our rapid fire for uh it doesn't get more cliche than that right um so okay so here are the questions um restaurant awards yay or nay stay don't worry you're not the only one who said that um how do you cook for uh gluten free gen or vegan people i usually don't <laughs> don't get me wrong but i just don't it's a challenge because i i mean you can't make japanese food so out of japanese food's framework it's like making saying make me indian food without haldi dhania mirchi uh, adrak lehsun pyaaz tomato like what else do i use now <laughs> a bucket list restaurant that you uh i yet to go to when you sound like the type like if you want to go you just Yeah, I'll just go. I'll just like walk in on one random store that I find. So I don't really have a place that I really want to go to. It's very surprising that I just walked into this one izakaya next to a railway track in Japan when I was in a uh, university the first day in Japan and that was the best experience till now. I love it. Okay. Um favorite food city in the world outside of Japan. Uh I would say probably Bangkok. or or hanoi yeah. that's high on a lot of people's list i think you wish you all the best it's um your restaurant but also uh i hope you your food spreads far and wide and more people get to try it and uh and kudos to you for all the uh love you have for what you do thank you for having me over and i'm i really like when there's a platform where you can speak about uh japanese food especially kaiseki cuisine and what uh the other side of japanese food actually is because I want a lot of people to know about is uh, know about it as well. Oh, you've definitely given people a glimpse into it. So, uh yes, and if you want to try uh Redish's food, please go to Pune to Ginko in Pune and um and get his list of them for for Japan as well. <laughs>